Welcome to Psydactic Residency Edition. Today is the 13th of March, 2023, and I am Dr. O'Leary, a third-year psychiatry resident in the National Capital Region. This is a podcast for psychiatry residents and others interested in the same kinds of things. There are a few things that this podcast is not. It is not medical advice. It is not produced by experts in recording, editing, and mixing sound. I do all of that in my very amateurish way. It is also not the opinion of the federal government, the Department of Defense, the Defense Health Agency, the American Psychiatric Association, or the League of Nations. It is my own opinion. Just me. Only lonely me. So let's get started. Today, I want to explore a question that may seem to have an obvious answer on the surface, but if we take some time to struggle with it a little bit, we might learn something more about what it is we're doing as psychiatrists. That question is, what is a placebo? You may already be thinking something like, a placebo is an imitation, fake, sham, decoy, or trick treatment that we give to people in studies to see if the treatment under investigation is any better or worse. Placebos are supposed to be both benign and inert, meaning they should neither harm nor help a patient beyond the patient just feeling or reporting that they're better or worse after they receive some kind or any kind of treatment. This seems straightforward, especially, for example, if you have two identical capsules, one of which contains a little sugar and the other contains a compound that is supposed to be pharmacologically active in some way, like, like an antipsychotic. But it doesn't have to be a sham pill could be comparing some treatment to a device, like, say, a TMS machine that's making noise but produces no electrical field, or acupuncture needles that retract and stick to the skin instead of puncturing the skin. It could be in action, such as eye movements or hovering hands over someone's body. It seems strange that there is something that can take innumerable forms and still still seems to work at least a little bit on so many different things. Placebos are like an all-powerful potion or magic spell. For some treatments, even active treatments, placebo effects account for the vast majority of the effect size, and it's not just an illusion. There are a number of reasons a person may report feeling better or may actually improve after taking a placebo. One of the primary reasons is a statistical phenomenon. 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 Called regression to the mean. What it basically means is that if someone is reporting feeling really bad, then whether you give them something or not, they're more likely to 
randomly report feeling better next time than feeling worse or the same simply because, well, there's just more statistical space near the mean than out at the edges. Think of it like this. You're in a very long hallway with a bunch of doors. You walk the hallway and you notice that there are a lot more doors near the center of the hallway than there are near the edges. That's where most people are, near the center. That's also where you normally live, but for some reason you're now in a room near the edge of the hallway. Not only are you kind of lonely now, but fewer people live there. If you were to wake up and randomly in another room, that room would likely be closer to the middle of the hallway, where you used to live, and closer to where most people currently live, than the room that you're in. That's a statistical phenomenon that happens when you measure a lot of people who are suffering. In aggregate, they regress to the mean. There's just less space to get worse than there is to get better, so by random chance, most will get better and a few will get worse. The average suffering will get closer to what the population average is. If you conduct a study on people near the edges without proper controls, then it's just going to look like the treatment worked by random chance alone. But instead of talking about, like, population means, we could talk about an individual's average place. For an individual, if they're feeling bad, then there's also less chance that they will feel worse after the treatment than to feel better. So whatever you give them, they're just often more likely to get better than worse. Think about someone who had a bad score when bowling. Usually they bowl a 150. They're pretty good, but not professional level. But this time, they bowled 110. You give them a green M&M and tell them that uh, it's going to help them perform better. In the next game, they bowl a 145. Is that magic? Or did they just regress to their average? The confidence boost they got might also have helped a little bit. But... It wasn't necessary. Mere chance was enough. Now, think of a patient who comes into your office reporting the worst mood they can ever remember having. What's the most likely thing they will report after you start them on Prozac? Interestingly, a nocebo could also work like this only in the opposite direction. A nocebo is like a placebo in that it's not expected to have any real or specific effects, but may make someone feel worse because they expect it to do this. Imagine the same bowler just bowled a 210, and you give them a red M&M stating that it's going to take away their magnificent bowling powers. This person's average is 150, so regardless of what you give them, they're more likely to bowl something close to 150 next time than not. However, when they bowl that 160, they're cursing you as the cause of their sudden worsening because it was you that slipped them that red M&M. But regression to the mean is only one explanation that relies on probabilities. There's also the natural history of most disorders. When someone's body or brain is malfunctioning in some kind of way, there are more than just random processes at work. There are active processes within our bodies that are trying to 
restore something approaching our own normal or homeostasis. When we're far from our own averages or the population averages, there are both random reasons why our next measurement will be closer to the mean and there are active processes within us pulling us closer to our mean. The mean is a place humans are programmed to be. A person may get better due to random, merely statistical, or active homeostatic processes working at the same time. That's one of the reasons that we randomly assign people to treatment groups and studies. The randomized control trial is supposed to make our statistics control for the unmeasured factors that could affect uh, the effect size. So we want our groups to be at about the same distance from the mean and also have these other factors randomly assigned to different groups. So overall, they have the same combined effect on the effect size in both groups. The placebo effect is also often discussed as being an effect of expectation of benefit. A patient or participant might report a benefit of treatment because... Well, there are kind of individual idiosyncratic or individual social factors involved in uh, their wanting to improve or thinking they will improve. There's something powerful about wanting to get better and expecting to. Participants may report getting better because, well, <laughs> they want the provider to feel good about themselves. You're doing good, doc, don't worry. Or their tendency to please the provider might count for something. There might also be a factor, um, say a study participant wants other people who might benefit from the treatment to not be affected by their own lack of response. This might result in them not reporting failure for what they perceive as other people's benefit. This would be a pretty complex social phenomenon. Phenomenon. If they feel others might benefit, then to protect others from their own failure, they might feel pressure to report better news than what they would have without that pressure. Conversely, there may be many social factors contributing to a nocebo effect, including like dislike of the provider, suspicion of medicine, or of big pharma, or a feeling of loss of control. Another factor could be how we perceive our own internal state. When we're getting cared for, we might report things like improvement in pain, improvement in mood and motivation, better sleep, less guilt and worthlessness, we might be coming from a place where, well, we've, we felt alone, isolated, but now we're in a place where people seem to care. We may have hope where there seemed to be none before. We may also now understate or can under-report things that might have seemed more disturbing previously when our minds in this uncared-for or isolated place... Um, was trying to make sense of our distress previously. We just think about it differently. When care is provided, 
anxiety can be reduced, concentration improved, obsessions and compulsions may be less distressing and easier to resist. Delusions might be farther from the surface of our thoughts. Urges to cut or pick might be less intense. To say that a placebo effect is all in somebody's head is both nonspecific and often unhelpful because it, well, it inspires us to stop trying to figure out why someone improved. It's just all in their head. Let me take the example of something that might take advantage of the same internal processes that placebos work on. Imaginal therapies. In short, imaginal therapies are when a patient is asked to imagine themselves in certain situations and then report back to the therapist. Some relaxation and mindfulness techniques utilize um, this. Imaginal therapy might also be used in exposure and response prevention therapies. I want you to imagine touching a door handle and walking through the door. Now imagine that you don't wash your hands, but instead you take off your jacket. After you do this, you also do not wash your hands, but instead you take off your shoes. In trauma-based therapies, Imaginal therapy can bring a patient back to a period of trauma and allow them to experience it again an environment where they can work through their feelings and have a very different temporal outcome. Is this just all in their heads? Is this merely taking advantage of the placebo response? As therapists, we might say something like, we're processing trauma and encouraging extinction learning. Or, the patient is practicing distress tolerance and allowing their neural networks to learn to respond to a normally distressing situation in a new way. Is a placebo all that different? Are patients imagining improving when they take that pill? There's a reason that many of the therapies nowadays, or when they're tested, are so likely to be tested in non-inferiority trials versus no treatment or a wait list. The mechanism that they are testing may not be all that different from, say, a, a sham treatment or just any other treatment. It might just be a more sophisticated version of the placebo response. There are some more interesting phenomena that I want to discuss, discuss here briefly. Uh, th this topic is huge, and no matter what I do, I'm only going to really scratch the surface. But one is that some placebo responses can be attenuated by giving opioid antagonists like naltrexone or naloxone. These are most prominently reported in pain studies when a response to a, a fake or sham analgesic disappears when you give the naltrexone. So in this case, the naltrexone could erase the placebo response. There may also be strong dopaminergic responses um, that people experience and gives them a feeling of well-being. Uh, there are studies that have shown that Patients who normally receive an active treatment might actually even have the same physiological response 
when you give them a placebo, as they did when they were getting the active treatment previously, and this, this might have some uh, especially um, interesting effects on uh, what happens when you put patients into a design where they receive uh, the active treatment for part of it and then the placebo next, or the placebo first, and then the active treatment. It might be that those aren't really fair switches because the people who receive the active treatment might have in their placebo response the same kind of response that they had to the active treatment. Other interesting phenomenon are that there seems to be an, an increase in the placebo response depending on factors such as like the color of the pills given, um, blue pills are better than white ones, and gold pills are the best. Or whether there's a medical device involved at all, like a machine hooked up to your ear may give a lot more pain relief than a fake pill. A um, syringe, uh, an injection, may give you more relief than a pill. And whether there's some sort of surgery involved, there's classic experiments how chest pain can be reduced by just pretending to ligate the internal mammary artery, um, something that surgeons used to do to reduce chest pain. If, if you fake it, you get the same result. So um, why do it? The more complicated the proposed treatment appears, the more difficult it seems to be to find an effect size in the active treatment that really differs from a fake treatment. There's also reported in many meta-analyses an apparent increase in the placebo response over time, like in studies over time, which makes it really more difficult in contemporary studies to differentiate between a placebo and an active treatment than it used to be. I don't know, maybe the expectations of participants in more recent times is just so high that they report more benefits simply because they feel they were being better treated than participants 30 or 40 years ago felt. Maybe we're also better at blinding patients than we used to be. This increase in the placebo effect could have at least two outcomes. So if you increase the placebo effect, it could augment an active treatment, in effect increasing the total response to an active treatment. So it's kind of additive. Um, you have your active treatment just added to the top of whatever the placebo response was. But it could also make it harder to find a difference between the active treatment and a placebo, where the placebo response is basically just superimposed on the active treatment. So if the placebo response is high, then the difference between the placebo and the active response is going to be a lot less. So that would means it would now we require higher-powered studies um, and still get less impressive-looking results. In this case, it may be more appealing for researchers to test like non-inferiority than against a placebo, if they can test against other existing treatments and show that it, their treatment is at least non-inferior. Uh, that would be one way to get around having to test it against a placebo. It has also been reported that some people are placebo responders and some are not, which has prompted researchers to propose study designs that include like at least two trials. The, in the first, they attempt to identify people who are re 
placebo responders or not. They give fake treatments, and if you respond to the treatment, then in the second study, they exclude you. Um, only placebo non-responders will be included. Um, by excluding the placebo responders, they're assuming that we might be able to better measure the actual effect size of the treatment. The people reporting the effects of the treatment are going to report the actual effect size on average. But <laughs> I'm really not sure about this, in part because the placebo response is so complex. I mean, for example, some of those identified to be responders, well, they just might have regressed to the mean or improved because of the natural course of their disease. So they're labeled a placebo responder and then excluded from the next trial. It's unclear how this is going to help identify the actual effects of the medication in a later trial because there's really no a priori reason why in the second trial some people might also improve due to regression to the mean or an active internal process and the natural history of the disease. I, just because you didn't respond in the first doesn't mean you might not have that happen in the second. I, I also don't think that's been established that uh, placebo non-responders do not also have non-specific biases, or if you want to even call them biases, in the way that they report. Non-responders might actually have been improving, but uh, they weren't perceiving a difference because, well, they're convinced that they cannot get better, and therefore they're not reporting it. I don't know. Not reporting a response to a placebo may mean that there actually was a re placebo response, but their condition was worsening, so in the end it just looked like there was no response. Uh, they didn't report a response because they got worse and they had a response, and that evened everything out. There are also certainly factors that have exacerbated some participants' symptoms that were not captured on the metrics that they're using, that the researchers are using. This is all to say that I do not think that it's established that someone who does not appear to respond to a placebo initially in the first trial won't respond later, or you won't have the same effects later if you exclude the placebo responders. I mean, likely we are all placebo and nocebo responders in some or most situations, and we don't now at least have the tools to tell what is what in any particular study. And that's why we randomize. There are tons of nonspecific responses in the treatments that we give people that might make it seem like they're getting better or worse. But it's often very hard to tell those from the intended or unintended effects of our drugs and therapies. It is also easier to recommend to a patient to continue treatment when they're reporting a good response than to try to convince a patient to just power through a side effect. In the end, if we aim to do things that maximize the placebo response of our patients in our clinic, we're likely doing good for them. Even if this same technique, if applied in research, would cripple our ability to find a statistically significant difference in a randomized controlled trial. Whether a response is primarily a placebo response or not is important for a researcher who's struggling to understand how their treatment actually works. But clinicians primarily need to know whether or not our patient is benefiting from our treatment. 
With this in mind, I encourage you to do whatever you can to maximize that placebo response. It is not just an illusion. Thank you for listening. I am Dr. O'Leary, and this has been an episode of Sciadactic Residency Edition. Thank you.